This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host. I am in dystopian New York City, where there are lines of people at grocery stores buying eggs and milk and whatever else people buy um, in, 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 in mid-crisis. I'm not sure exactly why they're buying those things. Uh, we are joined, as always, by my Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman, who is in um, Brooklyn, New York, which is a lot like New York City, but not quite. Um, and uh, is, is it dystopian also, Ryan? It is. I'm calling from underneath my bed. Yes, and uh, well, as as is true every week, let's just be honest with everybody. Um, and we are also joined from Washington D.C. by our friend Laura Rosenberger, formerly of the NSC, now of the Alliance uh, for Defending Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Um, are you under your bed, Laura? I am not under my bed, although I did manage to snag the very last bananas at Trader Joe's last night. So, <laughs> you know, I, I felt proud of that particular move. That is fantastic. Um, yeah. We'll hope it's not a very long crisis. Bananas, <laughs> bananas be, <laughs> being, being. You don't think the, they're going to get me through? I, I, <laughs> to be clear, there were six bananas left, and I procured all six of them. So I think we'll be good for those six days to not, you know, get spoiled. And after that, I'll figure out another plan. There was once many years ago when my children were little babies, and I was I was married to uh, their mother, a different woman that I'm married to now. There was a giant hurricane that came to New York, and everybody was panicking, and my wife at the time went to the supermarket and came back, and she had this tiny little bag. And I was like, well, what did you get? And then she had in it two cans of chicken. I mean, first of all, I didn't, I didn't, even, I didn't even know that chicken came in cans, to be perfectly honest. But, um, <laughs> but she thought this was like, you know, she looked at it and she said, well, this will last a long time. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't need it. Um, I, one of the reasons we wanted Laura here was to talk a little bit now that the election looks somewhat clearer, like what we might be able to expect from election interference and disinformation campaigns and the kind of thing that she's really been one of the great leaders in addressing in the United States and what, what we're doing to be resilient, what we're not doing. But before we get to that, I, 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 I've, I've seen some stories, um, Laura, in which it has been alleged that some foreign actors may be stirring up trouble on the coronavirus front, spreading rumors and that kind of thing, which reminds us that disinformation campaigns don't all have to pertain to elections, and that when a country is in the midst of this kind of a panic, creating rumors is, is, a, is a really effective way of creating trouble. Yeah. You know, I think 
frankly, most of what we see in terms of disinformation or information manipulation, which is how I will talk about it today, um, is actually not about elections. Um, elections are one really useful opportunity, um, and they're a place where adversaries can make particular advances in some of their goals, but they are by no means the entirety or even the majority of the activity we see. And even, and we'll come to this later, but even a lot of the activity that we saw around and after the 2016 election and what we're seeing now um, is aimed at dividing Americans, but not necessarily um, taking specific aim at, at the election. So I think it's a really great point to, to start with. And on the specific question of manipulation of information around coronavirus, I, I would say a couple of things. Um, you know, there's been some public reports that um, the State Department has alleged some activity um, on on uh, sort of a covert basis by by Russian actors, um, we've not been able to to verify that ourselves. Um, but what I would note is that uh, both Russia, China, and Iran, um, even in their overt media, um, are seeking to weaponize and peddle conspiracy theories. And just today, uh, several senior officials in China's foreign ministry, um, in their spokesperson's office, have been um, spreading a conspiracy theory about uh, the origins of the virus and alleging it was a U.S. Army attack. Um, so there's all kinds of ways that this kind of information can be used and weaponized. And, and the last point I'd make on this is that the Chinese Foreign Ministry, while peddling a conspiracy theory themselves, is simultaneously weaponizing our own lack of transparency against us. So basically mocking us for not putting out more information and data and statistics and touting themselves um, you know, Chinese authoritarian information controlled system as the model of openness. And so, you know, a lot of complicated vulnerabilities, right, just in that little package. Yeah, true, particularly since the Chinese have not actually been open or honest about the nature exactly. of the disease uh, yeah. and, and, and suppressing it all the way. Uh, but Laura brings up a good point, Ryan. The United States government, from whom we would expect an effort to uh, convey the truth and provide the facts to people to mitigate um, uh, potential panic, uh, market reaction, and so forth, has actually kind of sort of done the opposite. They have um, uh, denied that this is a serious issue. The president has said it will go away soon. As recently as today, in a conversation with the prime minister of Ireland, um, and uh, they have tried to manipulate statistics by not testing, by keeping people uh, who may uh, or who are in fact infected with the disease on a cruise ship off the coast of the U.S. for a while so that he wouldn't have to um, be attacked for the statistics uh, and so forth. And so in the midst of this crisis, you have the United States government weaponizing disinformation and trying to use it for political purposes, too, do we not? Yes, I, I completely agree. Um, and that it seems as though the president thinks of it as a public relations disaster rather than a public health disaster that he's has foremost in his mind um, and how he is, um, his own appearance in this is seems to be what he's fixated upon. And uh, there was a list yesterday that CNN produced of 28 uh, dishonest statements by the Trump administration on the coronavirus 
by the incomparable uh, Daniel Dale. And um, I thought that what was, to me, two of them that were key, because they did it in chronological order, so it's somewhat, I think many readers, maybe it's just like, it's just a wash of another set of lies or dishonest information from the Trump White House or from the president himself. But I think, to me, the two that were most significant were the ones that, in fact, are dangerous for the public because they encourage the public to be more complacent. Um, and one of them is this uh, disinformation about that the coronavirus is, is just like the flu or liking it, liking it to the flu. And it's not just Trump who does that, but then some of his surrogates. So Giuliani has this tweet where he lists out how many deaths there are to the flu versus the coronavirus. And so it spreads. And then, I, you know, just in my own um, life, coming up on people who are not really taking the precautions that they need to because they think it's just like the flu. <laughs> so that's one. Um, David, you mentioned another one, of course, which is this idea that it'll be over soon. That was today, but CNN did their list yesterday. Another one was uh, the idea that um, a, a vaccine will be here soon, as though it will, in fact, be in time to deal with the current um, crisis when the experts are saying it's at least a year, year and a half off at best. And I think both of those are extremely dangerous because the most important thing is about flattening the curve of the spread of the virus. And both of those tell the public, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm sitting here in the studio with Chris Cottonware, who is the president of the DSR Network, or, you know, the producers of all of these broadcasts. And you guys are having an effect because listening to you, Chris is slathering his hands with Purell. I mean, literally. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so there is a so so. Let, let, let me turn back to um, uh, disinformation, Doctor Laura Rosenberger. So you're you're like, you know, you're like the so physician. Dubious, who, dubious distinction there. But go ahead. No, no, I don't. Th I don't <laughs> think it's a dubious distinction because I think you study this, and you know, one of the points that you bring up regularly with regard to elections and so forth is this issue of resilience. Um, and of course, some of the resilience comes from the government, and we'll get back to that in a second too. But with regard to something like coronavirus and the, you know, the tendency for rumors to spread, whether they come from overseas or whether they come from our government, when, when a lot, when you're in a situation where a lot of the information out there isn't true, and by the way, you know, just as an example, in the right before I came up here, I got a text from um, uh, somebody saying, uh, New York City is about to be quarantined. Get your food now. <laughs> and, and, and I got another text from somebody saying, I'm at a supermarket. It's Bedlam. Well, New York City is not about to be quarantined. That wasn't actually true. So the question, doctor, is how, you know, how, do, how does the consumer of information make themselves more resilient? How do they inoculate themselves against disinformation in this kind of situation? Well, there's a couple of, of things I would say on what consumers can do. But before I say what consumers can do, let me sort of um, make a, a sort of longer speech on this particular point, which is that I think at the end of the day, when we're putting the onus of resilience on consumers alone, um, we are, we've already lost half the battle. And so there is a lot that consumers of information can and should do to make themselves more resilient. And I will talk about that. 
but the abdication of responsibility by other actors in this space is one um, that is is increasingly problematic um, because there's only so much that individuals can do, um, particularly as we look toward a future where we're going to be dealing with manipulated information from using artificial intelligence where it will be impossible for the human eye or ear to distinguish if something is manipulated or not. And so relying on so the you, end So you could user, have like a fake Ryan Goodman saying, I'm out from could. under my bed and nothing to yep. worry about. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you could fake his voice. Um, you can make him say things he never said. Um, you can have a video of him saying and doing things he never did. And um, it's going to become so good that, you know, without getting into technical details, you're going to have scenarios where even AI detection um, systems are not going to be able to quickly distinguish, and it's sort of an arms race space. So the, the bottom line of that scary future is that relying at the end of the day on consumers of information to be the ultimate resilience point is, is not really the most sustainable way of going about this. That being said, there are things people can do and should do. And the first is, frankly, you know, we live in a heavily polluted information environment. And the, the numerous sources of information that people have coming at them from multiple different directions means it's much harder to sort um, what is chaff and what are the kernels you're really looking for. And so in a time of crisis and panic, um, it's incredibly important for people to go first to reliable sources of information, trusted sources of information. Um, and, and really, um, that's going to be, you know, I, a lot of the news outlets that have done the right thing of dropping paywalls to make their coverage open to all users. Um, I think that's incredibly important. Um, I think it's incumbent on cable news networks, frankly, um, to, um, you know, as they are covering these issues, I would like to see much fewer um, uh, talking heads that are political leaders talking about coronavirus and many more health experts that are talking about coronavirus. Um, I think there's all kinds of things we can do to make sure we have access to trusted sources of information. One of the things we know that happens in these kinds of moments um, is that something, uh, you have both a sort of mass amount of information, but you also have things that are created called data voids. And basically what that means is when something happens, like, you know, somebody starts a false rumor about New York City being quarantined and shut down, the advantage in the online digital space to somebody creating that rumor is that if I go and Google or I search on a platform for New York City shutting down, I'm going to get all the content that some manipulator is putting out there trying to spread a conspiracy theory. You don't have somebody saying, no, it's not being shut down because it's not a question, right? It takes a while to catch up there. And so everybody who sees something that doesn't seem, you know, is, is like a new thing and that they're not sure if it's true should pause a beat search for some trusted source of information, and wait for verification from multiple sources. Um, I think those are some of the best things we can do. Yeah, I think, by the way, another thing that strikes me is that you can identify things that seem to be narratives that are, are supporting a political purpose or some other purpose. 
So, you know, that, you know, if there's a narrative right. out there that this mm-hmm. is coming from China and blaming the Chinese or it's all going to go away yeah. or, and you're seeing a lot of that, but it's only coming from one kind of source, um, that, that should mm-hmm. be a red flag in any event. Um, uh, and, and, and these come from all different parts of the political spectrum, right? Yeah, and, and, you know, I think that one of the good things that we are seeing right now, even in a moment when um, political leadership in Washington, um, and certainly uh, in the White House, but also in a few other quarters, um, is trying, you know, and taking advantage of politicizing um, this particular crisis, uh, we are seeing state and local leaders really stepping up in a, in a really important way. And those are also trusted sources of information, right? Um, and I think will establish themselves through their calm, collected approaches. And, and those are other places where I think people should, should turn to. Yeah, and of course, by that, you, you also meant Deep State Radio. Um, of but, course, of course, course. yeah. No, ultimate of course. source the, of, the you ult- know, liable COVID-19 <laughs> information. Exactly. Yeah. Truth. Wait, what... what? One thing to jump in with is I wonder if um, it's too early to tell, and I don't want to be too um, optimistic about this, but I wonder if the coronavirus will create a bit of a reckoning um, with media outlets that have spread misinformation um, and that I assume there will be studies done to demonstrate just, and there are already like survey instruments about Fox News viewers of um, late night Fox TV um, or primetime Fox TV and how much they are being given disinformation about the coronavirus and its threat and the public uh, safety issues that uh, people have to take into account. Um, and there's, you know, some anecdotal information that people are uh, now, uh, you know, searching desperately uh, for other avenues of information so that uh, they might, in fact, realize that they've been relying on uh, platforms that are not after their uh, best uh, interests. And, I, I, you know, who knows uh, how it will all turn out, but I uh, I think that there's a, just such a stark reality of what's coming down the pike with the coronavirus that it even you know forced the president to do the primetime national address last night, which is in a certain sense a significant reversal over his minimization of the public health threat that uh, people are waking up to that or will wake up to that, hopefully. Yeah, although a lot of the... Yeah. A lot of the primetime speech was devoted to saying everything we're doing is great, as opposed to we're going to do this new thing. Um, Laurie, you know, you spend time at the NSC. You're a professional who's dealt with this world. I want to ask one last question on this before we shift over to the elections. Um, the, 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 the reports have come out of the White House that the discussions about the coronavirus um, have been classified. Uh, in other words, that, you know, they are trying to block. Now, they've made the argument that the reason they're classified is sometimes they mention China and therefore they have to be classified. Um, but that seems to be a red flag to me. It also seems to be a way that governments that are engaged in misinformation or disinformation efforts, um, uh, you know, can cover their trail. And we've seen other ways um, that actually relate 
more to things like foreign election intervention with the recent assignment of people to the Directorate of National Intelligence who've sent the message that they don't want narratives about foreign election interference being passed up the food chain from the intelligence community to policymakers, um, which suppresses information about these things. So you have active efforts at disinformation, and then you actually have them sort of clearing the way for other nations to conduct disinformation campaigns. And both of these seem to me to be, you know, malpractice in terms of information hygiene from a government. And I'm just wondering what your reaction is. Yeah, I would say a couple of different things. I mean, one is, and and not to get super wonky here, um, but the, the, the reason you're here, the reason you're here, is that we are <laughs> counting on you to become super wonky. Okay, great. I love this, it. This is, go full wonk. This is a show um, where the audience is all nerds. Yay. Okay. Um, see, it's been too long since we've done this. Yes, so exactly. I, I had forgotten how nerdy I could be. Yeah. Let my true inner nerd out. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the information battle space is an asymmetric one. And it's one where authoritarian regimes, um, you know, by, by dint of the way that they are governed and their fear of power being given to people, um, control information and um, find it useful to manipulate it for their own purposes. Democracies, on the other hand, have free and open information spaces, and that's a source of our strength, and, and uh, information in our systems rests with people. Um, and while that opens democracies to some of the external attacks that we uh, have seen and we'll talk about, um, it also means that our real advantage is in our transparency and in our reliance on truth. And the fact that in both of the instances that you just talked about, the inclination of the administration has been away from transparency and a fear of truth means that we're really actually playing directly into our adversary's hands. Um, because we're making the, the information battle space one that's even more advantageous to them, right? Um, so in, let's sort of break them out into two buckets. So the, the public health crisis question obviously is one where transparency and fact-based information is literally essential to saving lives. Um, and we know, David, as you rightly pointed out, that China's early response in particular was very much focused on quashing information and, you know, to the point of literally silencing the original doctor who tried to raise, um, you know, the alarm about this um, and really uh, trying to control information about the threat. And um, they rightly faced a huge amount of criticism for that and we globally lost a lot of time because of what China did there. But the answer um, to the U.S. dealing with this challenge is not to replicate what China did. Um, it's, in fact, to lean into our value of transparency and truth and, and open information and to embrace that um, as what should be a, a source of our strength in this moment. Um, and so classifying information, I would add, by the way, that for a lot of agencies that are operating on these issues, uh, you know, on, on public health issues, 
where dealing with classified information is not something that they are typically doing and where they may not even have the capacity to handle classified information or people with security clearances. So the other thing that worries me in a scenario where you have meetings being classified on these issues is that you may be hindering sharing of information within the government with some of the actors who are most critical to actually doing the frontline protection. Um, so that's on that piece. And then on the politicization of the election security information and the briefings there, you know, this actually connects back to your earlier resilience point. One of the things that makes the public resilient um, or more resilient in the face of efforts by Russia and others to weaponize the information space and interfere in our elections um, is uh, awareness about what is in fact happening. Um, and clear messaging from the government about the threats and how and the steps that are being taken to mitigate them. And by trying to um, stifle information about what is happening and to spin it for political purposes, it actually makes us far less resilient by creating confusion and giving people the ability to weaponize leaks and to weaponize their version of the truth um, and creates real openings for our foreign adversaries. Yeah, real openings, Ryan. And, and you know, when I th we think about this, you know, you think about the 2016 election and you think about the fact that there was Russian intervention and you think about the fact that this was really the first time that there was general public awareness of this. Um, and there were condemnations of the Russian intervention from um, uh, people across the political spectrum at different points. Um, of course, there was some minimization as well. And now we find ourselves in 2020. And in 2020, we have not allocated the funding to defend against this. The Senate has blocked the funding to defend against this. And the president um, has, uh, you know, undertaken several measures to suppress further investigations into this, whether it's having the attorney general, um, Bill Barr, undertake investigations and oversee investigations into how the intelligence community got this information, which has a chilling effect above and beyond anything the investigations might produce, or in fact, taking people who are wholly unqualified, like Rick Grinnell, or like uh, the White House attorney who suppressed the Ukraine information, or this guy, Cash Patel, putting them over the intelligence community and having them essentially sit on their throat, put a boot on their throat and say, no, you will not talk about this. We will not pass this up the line. And so the reaction to the intervention of the Russians in 2016 has not been to make it any more difficult to do that again in 2020. It's actually been to make it easier and more likely and to have the power of the presidency on the side of the the, the meddlers, the interveners, the Russians, and against the interests of the American body politic. And it continues every day. We've just saw these stories about the director of national intelligence the past few days. What, what, what's your view on this, Ryan? I think that's right. Um, it's a highly politicized control over the intelligence community and intelligence analysis, and especially I think the issue that it raises most significantly is election interference, uh, which is to, in fact, then uh, keep the president in office through November and beyond. Um, and the reporting on the intelligence uh, briefers to Congress this week not being able to disclose information to them 
the reporting said that Cash Patel, in fact, had met with them right beforehand and put the kibosh on their ability to tell Congress certain things. We don't know what that is. It was the Post, I think it's the Washington Post reporting. Um, and I thought what was remarkable about the Post reporting is that this is a paragraph buried very deep in the report because the report is framed in terms of um, the, what we do to ourselves to put everything in a partisan frame. So it was, oh, the Democratic Congress, uh, members of Congress were outraged about the intelligence uh, officials not being able to give them information, and so it was Democratic Congress, members of Congress versus Republican. But in fact, this paragraph said it was the um, U.S. intelligence officials themselves who thought that there was no justification for withholding that information. Uh, so it's inside of the executive branch that there seem to be serious concerns about uh, what's afoot here. Um, yeah, I, well, I think that we also see mounting new threats along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, as of just this afternoon, Laura, there's a story here in CNN. Uh, yeah. and, and it says Russian election meddling is back via Ghana and Nigeria and in your feeds. And it begins... The Russian trolls are back and once again trying to poison the political atmosphere in the United States ahead of this year's elections. But this time they're better disguised and more targeted, harder to identify and track. And they may have found an unlikely home far from Russia itself. And it goes on to say that that home includes Africa, Ghana and Nigeria, uh, Africa, comma, Ghana and Nigeria. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm just wondering what you say to the thesis of that article. Yes, well, I'm glad that you brought that up because um, I was going to as well. It's a well-timed um, recording we're doing here on, on Thursday afternoon. Um, so a couple of things that are really fascinating about what both Facebook and Twitter both just announced um, in terms of this network that they have identified. Um, one is that it continues a trend um, of um, Russian operations um, to basically use carve-outs and cutouts, often in third countries and sometimes real individuals, um, to evade detection that's been put in place um, since the 2016 election. Um, and this is something we have seen um, uh, Russia doing um, in Ukraine. We've seen them do it in other African countries, and now we're seeing it, seeing them do it through African countries targeted at the United States. Um, and so this is a trend that we have seen. Um, they actually set up, they use real individuals in, in Ghana and Nigeria to set up um, sort of like front NGOs that were engaging on issues around race in particular, and um, including some of the same stuff we saw from 2016 around Black Lives Matter um, and other weaponization of, of race um, as a vector to um, blow open divisions in American society. And of course, we're uh, really well primed on that front too, given um, our, our gaping, festering wound of racism in this country. So that second piece that it continues is, frankly, since what we've seen the Soviet Union doing during the Cold War, which is weaponizing race um, against Americans uh, to weaken and divide us. And we saw a huge amount of activity 
um, around the 2016 elections um, that was related to, to race. We saw a huge amount of it afterwards. Um, actually, some of the most significant activity um, in the post-election period uh, before all the networks at that time were identified and taken down was around, was around race. Um, and so continuing to see that as a, as a vector here um, in American, um, you know, in targeting American society. Um, and then the third thing is, I think this comes to your earlier point, which is that, um, you know, so much of this activity that we see around social media manipulation from Russia is not about election-specific content. So most of what um, Facebook and Twitter found in, in the content that they looked at um, was not directly related to a candidate or, or the election at all. In fact, only a tiny, tiny portion mentioned any candidate, and it was really in passing. Um, and this was much more about priming the battle surface, either for later targeting around um, those issues, so by building audience over time, or it could have been for what we later saw in the 2016 cycle, which was suppressing the black vote, attempts to suppress the black vote. Um, and then the third is just generally dividing us. Um, so again, like speaks to that earlier point you made about the, the way we need to understand this is a much broader effort in which elections are just one, one piece of it. But really, really disturbing, disturbing um, story here. The one thing, um, because I feel like we're so doom and gloom, I want to just make one <laughs> positive point. Um, and it's not a positive point I always make, um, but I think is justified here, is that one of the things many of us who work on these issues have been talking about for some time is the need for increased collaboration amongst a range of actors who are working on this. And this is actually a very good news story on that front. This involved cooperation across different platforms, sharing information. This involved cooperation actually with journalists who discovered some of this activity themselves and shared it with the companies and worked with them on it. Um, and I understand that it may have involved cooperation with other actors, including in the public sector. So I actually think in that sense, it's a good news story that this operation was identified in part because of the increased collaboration that is happening. Uh, Brian, would you mind if I ask Laura a follow-up to that? And then maybe uh, yes, we've please. only got a few minutes left, and then maybe you can you know, provide some thoughtful and uh, wonderfully synthetic summation. Uh, yeah. um, uh, but, but Laura, you know, when you were talking there, one of the things I was thinking about is the role uh, and response of the big tech companies in all of this and how you think they're doing. Yes. So um, they are doing better than they were four years ago, but there is still a lot left to be done. Um, what I would say is that, um, you know, I think that at this point most of the companies have – have both built their capacity um, to to detect these operations. They have policies in place around them, and they um, are much more equipped to take action around certain kinds of activities. Um, what worries me is that a few things. One, that's the big companies. There's a lot of the smaller companies that um, don't have the same bandwidth and capacity. Um, or haven't taken the threat as seriously, where we do see a lot of these activities at least being generated initially, if not, go, you know, obviously some of the bigger platforms are the ones where you can reach at scale, um, but some of these 
operations are actually coordinated first on other platforms. So that's one piece. Piece two is that we, um, we still have a real patchwork of policies in place by the platforms um, that in my mind are much more like Band-Aids um, over gunshot wounds, um, where we have a systemic structure um, that is powering most of this disinformation um, and, and um, deceptive activity. Um, and the platforms have not been willing to engage, um, engage on discussion about meaningfully changing some of the systemic structures that enable these activities. Um, so that's, I think, a, a problem that we still see. Um, and then I think the last thing is that because um, so much of this activity is, is evolving to other tactics, which, as you noted in reading from that CNN story, are, are really trying to evade detection. One of the harder things that we see now, you know, this was using carve-outs and cutouts in Africa. But in other instances, there have been carve-outs and cutouts used by the Russians within the target countries. So um, if you had, for instance, those same operations being conducted using Americans, many probably unwittingly, um, to do the same kinds of activities that these folks in Ghana and Nigeria were, um, were doing, um, you would have a real problem in terms of the platform's ability to deal with that because it has different implications for free speech. Um, and that's where I think we still are really vulnerable is that nexus between the foreign and the domestic um, where the ability for the platforms to react um, and, and deal with the challenge is much more limited. Ryan, last word. Or you could ask a question to Laura. Or you could ask a question to me, if you like. I just don't have any answers. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, the, if I were to, I'm not trying to synthesize everything, because there's a lot that we've talked about. And I think, Laura, maybe you'd use the terminology you said for the the conversation of, I think it was information manipulation, is that right? Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, I do think that is a thread that moves throughout a lot of this um, information manipulation from the intelligence community, concerns about issues respecting the election, and then information uh, that we all rely on to keep our families, uh, communities uh, safe with respect to the coronavirus. And you know, I guess I'm just not, look, not looking for a synthesis of that, worrying most about uh, what the, the show will look like a week from today, uh, because I think we're going to be in a very different world of understanding of the coronavirus. And there was something that uh, Joe Biden had said today, and I, I'm, I just did think, I thought that his speech did um, reflect a significant amount of leadership, but... I forget exactly how he said it, but it was a paraphrasing it like when Americans are given the truth, even if it's a you know harsh truth, we can uh, come together around it. Now that's obviously very rosy and overly optimistic, um, but there's something to it. I think that we crucially are dependent upon the spread of um, truthful and reliable information uh, with what's about to hit us. Um, like a tsunami, um, I think, mm -hmm. with the coronavirus in the next week, two weeks. So yeah. uh, just a sober piece to end this with. And I have to admit, I mean, throughout the entire conversation, it's just been weighing on my mind uh, as something that so many of our other conversations are going to look different because of what's about to happen. 
I, I heard you say, yeah, in the middle there, Lord, is there something you want to add to that? No, I, I think it's right. And I, again, I, I think a lot of this in the frame of, um, you know, the, from the broader geopolitical context we're seeing right now between democracies and authoritarian systems mm-hmm. and, and how does the way we use information in democracies, um, you know, how, how can we use that to our advantage um, when it seems at the moment like the authoritarians are really the ones who are, who are trying to weaponize it. And the problem is, um, at least in, in, you know, a lot of what we've spoken about today is that actors within our own system are increasingly using information um, according to the more authoritarian model. Um, and as a democratic system, that just simply makes us not only much more vulnerable, but it, I mean, it makes us fundamentally less democratic. And that's a huge mm-hmm. problem um, that has major implications, frankly, not only for our system of government, but our way of life. Um, and I certainly hope that that's a trend we can reverse. Um, and I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to, to do that. Um, but I think you're right to, to put in that in that broader broader framework and context. Well, and I can even put it in a broader framework and, framework and context as we wrap up to say that throughout human history, there has been um, a challenge for everybody, for all people in all situations to somehow discern between truth and superstition and lies. Uh, t- and that has never been easy. Uh, and it has often been uh, a quest which uh, has been... Uh, made more difficult by uh, powerful forces intervening on behalf of one or another of those things. Um, And it is not easier today, even though uh, there is so much information available to us. But even if you can make your way to the truth through all of this, there is another challenge, and that is to draw a set of conclusions about what the truth means. Um, And that requires insight and experience. Um, And and that layer is also something uh, that some people try to suppress because it uh, produces outcomes they don't like. Uh, We don't here at Deep State Radio. Uh, One of the things that helps you get to uh, insight and experience are the best brains out there. And I think, and I'm, I'm biased, but because they're friends, but Laura Rosenberger and Ryan Goodman are two of the best (laughs) brains out there. And so having access to them to talk about this uh, is extremely important uh, in a time when truth is a life and death issue, both for average people concerned about coronavirus and for all Americans as they are concerned about the survival of American democracy. Uh, So we'll come back to this issue again and again and again because it is a life and death issue, not only for each of us, but for the systems uh, that we value. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I would like to note that we will have a special episode of Deep State Radio tomorrow, following up on one we did a couple of weeks ago, uh, which will be an interview with uh, epidemic expert uh, and extremely smart person, Lori Garrett, one of the great uh, uh, writers and uh, journalists covering these issues for decades. And uh, it'll be great to have her here, and I encourage you to go and listen to that and all we do at thedsrnetwork.com. And uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was was great. Really, really good episode. Um, Thanks, David. Thanks for the invitation to join. Oh, no, we'd love to have you back as often as 